Good afternoon. We're going to get started now. Um, my name is Joy Moses, and I'm here with the Center for American Progress in our poverty program. And I definitely want to welcome you here today, and, and thank you for, for coming. Um, we're very impressed by the turnout and how many people are interested in this very important topic. Um, the title of this program, is, as you probably know, is All You Can Eat, How Hungry is America in Good Times and Recession. This event obviously is um, coincides with a lot of very significant and weighty events going on in our city today. Um, first of all, the Department of Labor has released new unemployment statistics that indicate that there's been an increase in unemployment yet again to 7.6%. And I don't think anyone who um, pays halfway any attention can ignore the fact that the Congress is in the midst of a um, <laughs> very long battle over a recovery package that it includes um, some basic needs assistance related to some of the topics the, the topics that we're talking about today, which is food programs. So we definitely approached this topic in a very interesting time. Um, and not to mention we are still in the shadow of a very new administration and a new Congress that we're trying to figure out what directions they're headed in. And um, I think thinking about um, how hopeful we should be and how, um, how what kinds of exciting things may come up in the years to come. But it's not a great time for America's poor, um, a growing class of people who are daily struggling to make their budgets um, balanced and who are struggling to um, make sure that they have enough food to eat, which is why we're here today. Um, this concern is obviously rooted in the knowledge of the current recession, but also that we have a history in this country of having people who are suffering through food insecurity. So we have a lot to talk about, and we have a very esteemed panel of experts here to help us through these issues. Um, I'll introduce them, and then I'll, I'll let us get going into the conversation. Immediately to my right is Joel Berg, who is the executive director of the New York Coalition Against Hunger. Um, and he's also the author of a new book called All You Can Eat, How Hungry is America, which inspired the title of our program today. He'll be around to um, sign books if you're interested in reading it. I, I would highly recommend it. It's a very good um, thorough analysis of hunger in America, food programs, and just thinking about poverty in general. Um, and to his right is Judith Bell, who is the president of PolicyLink, which is an organization that focuses on equity and equitable development in neighborhoods. She spent a lot of time focused on access to healthy foods in neighborhoods and the connection to, of that to health. And of course, on the end, um, we're joined by Jim Weil from the Food Research Action Center, which is a, a very prominent organization in the city that's done um, a lot of significant work on lobbying on food-related issues over the years. So we're going to get started. I'm going to turn the floor over to Joel. And welcome. Thank, thank you so much, Joy. Thank you, the Center for American Progress. Thank you, my distinguished colleagues on the panel. Since uh, Washington is often an irony-deprived uh, town, I want to welcome you to this anti-hunger lunch. Uh, and I always start my talks by reminding people what people in America used to think about yellow fever, cholera, and malaria in the 18th and 19th centuries, that they were permanent parts of the natural environment. There was nothing that humans had anything to do with creating them or certainly ending them. And the best we could hope for was a little charity to make the problems 
marginally less horrible, but they certainly weren't solvable by humans. And these problems were intractable. Uh, yellow fever was so bad, they moved the capital of America to uh, Washington, D.C., to get away from the yellow fever in Philadelphia. The cholera death rate in New York City in the mid-1800s was so bad, transposed today, it would equal more than 100,000 people dying a year. Now, you didn't know you were going to get a lunch quiz, but a show of hands now, anyone you know, in the Peace Corps or CDC, I'm taking you out of this, but have any of you ever contracted yellow fever, malaria, or cholera in the United States? Have any of you ever met anyone who has? Okay, I, I bet they were in low-income neighborhoods. I bet it was probably cholera. These diseases have basically been wiped out in the United States while they're prevalent throughout the world because government solved major problems. We figured out that these problems could be eradicated, and we as a community, and when people say, Joel, why do you talk about government solving problems? Why don't you talk about community solving problems? I remind people in a democracy, which we are again, that uh, government is the embodiment of community. And so I start all my talks by reminding people that there was a time America did solve major problems collectively. Now, one of the points of my book is that things have actually gotten better. Sometimes advocates are a little loath to admit things can ever get better because somehow it'll reduce the urgency of our cause. But I found a master thesis from, by Francis Perkins from 1910, yes, the same Francis Perkins, who later became Secretary of Labor, the first female cabinet secretary. She did minor little things like help write the Social Security Act and give us a national minimum wage. But turns out her most significant accomplishment was writing a master thesis I could quote in my book. Uh, and she said, one of the children, she studied child hunger in New York City in 1910. One of the children was an Italian boy with a continual pain in his chest and a bad cough which lasted two years. The father is a cobbler, making $7 or $8 a week, and the family lives in the basement rooms back of the shop. The lad with the pain in his chest lives in a semi-dark, damp room and eats little besides macaroni, bread, and coffee. One further element of hopelessness is that he's now turned 14, has taken his working papers, and one must get a factory job at once. As bad as food insecurity and hunger in America are today, they are far less bad than they were in 1910. Why? Because we developed federal nutrition safety net programs, which by and large worked. The first pilot food stamps program in the Great Depression, the school lunch program started by President Truman in the late 40s as a national security effort, the more modern expanded food stamps program and WIC program and expanded school lunch and school breakfast program created in the late 60s and the 1970s succeeded wildly. As late as the 1960s, doctors went to the South and documented third world style pockets of malnutrition, like you would see today in Somalia or North Korea and parts of Latin America. They went back to the same areas in the late 1970s and these problems were almost eliminated. Why do we have this problem today? Well, I started with one secular parable, as I call it, the parable of the yellow fever. I'll give you one more quick secular parable, and that's what I call the bucket brigades parable. We used to fight fires one bucket at a time. It was wonderful. You didn't need a big government bureaucracy. 
You didn't need to spend a lot of tax dollars. You didn't need to fill out a lot of forms. Alexis de Tocqueville came to America and described things like the Bucket Brigade as what made America different than old Europe, that we were volunteers banding together to get the job done. There's only one weensy teensy, weensy little problem with the Bucket Brigade, so small perhaps I shouldn't even mention it, but they didn't work. City after city burnt to a crisp. And so what did we do? We replaced volunteers with professional fire departments. Even in rural suburban areas that still have quasi-volunteer fire departments, they're usually trained and equipped by the government. We developed modern fire safety codes. This building isn't built out of paper mache anymore. There are fire exits here. And we replaced antiquated buckets, which at one night at 3 a.m., I calculated for my book, uh, delivered about 60 gallons of water a minute, with professional fire trucks that deliver 1,000 gallons of water a minute. Now I ask you, your house is on fire. It's 3 a.m. in February. Which would you prefer? Volunteers that may or may not show up, may or may not be trained, may or may not have enough water, and have buckets that can deliver 60 gallons of water a minute, or professional fire truck that delivers 1,000. I know what you'd choose. Why do I use this analogy? You probably figure it out. When it comes to fighting hunger, this nation has been conned into thinking we can solve the problem with bucket brigades. In 1978, this country didn't have food pantries in any large scale. We had a few hundred emergency feeding agencies. Most were soup kitchens. Most were serving the stereotypical hungry in inner city missions. Today, we have more than 40,000 soup kitchens and food pantries, two-thirds of which are food pantries serving boxed and canned food to families, working people, senior citizens, children, immigrants. In the late 1970s, if you were working full-time, you may have been poor, but you certainly weren't facing food insecurity in any significant manner. We went back. And that's why we have 25 million Americans going to these agencies and 36.2 million Americans living in families that can't afford enough food. Now, uh, sometimes reporters or other people and elites, I have a funny existence like most hunger advocates do, where we're spending part of our time with poor people and other part of our time with non-poor people trying to raise money to help poor people. People go, oh, this is a hidden problem. And I love when the media says that to me. 36.2 million people is more than the population of California. It's not hidden to them. What is it today in America? And Mark Nord, one of the authors of this methodology, will probably be embarrassed or in trouble that I mentioned him. Uh, but you know, we distinguish this between third world style starvation. It's not people starving in the streets. We used to have that. The federal nutrition safety nets wiped that out to a large degree. It's people choosing between food and rent, people choosing between food and health care, people rationing food. Ironically, people buying less nutritious, more filling food, because that's all that exists in their neighborhood, all they can afford, and becoming more obese. It's people choosing between cancer medicine and food. I described in my book a study from rural Kentucky, people couldn't afford either cancer medicine or food. This is a country that last year had 400 billionaires. Let's say we only have 200 billionaires this year. Having a state where we can't afford health care, Cancer medicine and food to me is abominable. A school official in New York told me they saw a child going through the dumpster in the back of their school getting food. A rabbi in New York told me they were sitting at a Starbucks and someone surreptitiously sort of uh, wandered up to them and ate crumbs off their plate after they left. In America. America. Unbelievable. Uh, the good news is from my book and all the work everyone else is doing here, there is a solution. We almost ended it in the 1970s. So we can end it 
if we have the right leadership. If you put more cops on the street and it dramatically reduces crime, the logical solution is, oh, take them off the street. The logical solution is put more on the street, finish the job. We've got to finish the job on ending hunger in America. It costs our society $90 billion a year, according to a study of Dr. Larry Brown of Harvard University, $90 billion a year in increased spending on health care, reduced educational performance, reduced worker performance. I calculated that two years ago, before the economic downturn hit its worst, you could entirely end all food insecurity in America by an additional $24 billion a year in food purchasing power for low-income people. Uh, the stimulus package is a good start. Uh, I think uh, those of us who are progressives here ought to fight like the Dickens for it and fight like the Dickens against attempts to water it down. Besides the hunger provisions, the other progressive provisions, nothing gets me angrier than hearing, oh, why do you have things like Pell Grants in there? That's not an economic stimulus. First of all, whoever writes that obviously didn't come from a family where they or their children ever had to worry about paying for college. Secondly, it's clear that Education is one way to reduce poverty, which is the key cause of hunger. So the bad news is we have 36.2 million Americans, more people than the entire population of California who can't afford enough food. The good news is we could end this problem in just a few months if we take common sense steps, expand programs that work, and also bring in a little reform to make the programs even more efficient, reducing bureaucracy while feeding more hungry people. Thank you. Thank you. I'm next going to turn the floor over to Jim, who has been um, obviously focused on the recession and its impact on, on low-income families and following the recovery and advocating um, in relation to the recovery package. Jim? Thanks, Joy. Uh, well, I want to thank Cap for having this event today. Uh, thank you all for coming, and uh, I want to highly recommend to you Joel's book, which is really an important and clear and, as you can hear today, passionate and wry uh, analysis of the history and nature and depth of this problem and the solutions. Uh, Joel has spoken in that voice today, which leaves it to me to be the wonk. Um, I'm not sure that's a fair division, but since he did all the work to write the book, uh, I guess he gets to define the roles here today. I will add to his bucket brigade analogy uh, one of my, uh, my favorite stories, which is uh, in uh, 81, I guess it was, the early Reagan days when the Air Florida plane crashed in the river. And a guy named, a private citizen driving by named Lenny Skutnik dove into the river and rescued a couple of people and was honored by Reagan. And uh, the uh, Harper's Magazine ran a picture of Lenny Skutnik and the caption said, commendable private initiative. And then there was a picture of a Park Service helicopter picking people out of the river in the same day, same flight, and the caption was, burdensome government intervention. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to talk about the stimulus bill, about child nutrition reauthorization, and other steps the Obama administration should take. I'm going to do it roughly in that order. I'm going to start with the stimulus bill. Uh, since early 08, conservative and progressive economists almost unanimously have agreed that we needed to boost nutrition programs, particularly food stamps, uh, because low-income people needed the help, they were suffering in the recession, and because dollar-for-dollar dollar food stamps is the best stimulus there is. And uh, one way or another that was said by uh, Martin Feldstein and Peter Orzag and Robert Reich and Robert Rubin and, Rubin and Ben Bernanke and a whole list of people. You can actually find them on a website we put up 
Uh, that's www.realstimulus.org. Uh, it hasn't happened yet because the Bush administration kept opposing it. The House stimulus bill has a significant food stamp boost in it, uh, $20 billion worth of increased spending, almost all of it in the first two years, um, a, a substantial increase in benefits that phases down, an improvement in the rules for uh, able-bodied adults who don't have kids, who are subject to a bizarre or, or a harsh uh, provision that was put in the 96 welfare law that limits them normally to three years benefits, uh, three months benefits out of every three years. Uh, so it fixes that temporarily, raises benefit levels, uh, puts about $300 million over two years into states for administering food stamps because states are obviously having a terrible time dealing with the huge jump in people applying at the same time that they have revenue drops and terrible problems uh, keeping their own staff on. Uh, so the, uh, uh, there's an important set of food stamp investments in the House bill, and the Senate bill is similar, albeit slightly smaller. There's also an important investment in the House bill in after-school nutrition uh, to give money to schools and to community-based organizations to feed kids snacks and suppers uh, in after-school programs. It's good because it's a quick infusion of federal dollars. It's good because kids, this is after-school programs in low-income areas. Kids are hungry. They need the food. Uh, it's good because it helps after-school programs improve. And it's good because uh, as parents struggle in the current job market even more than before, low-income parents struggle and are often in jobs either with long hours if they're lucky or non-traditional hours, um, having this after-school support is incredibly important. And also in the stimulus bill, and equally important through a hunger perspective, are the income supports that are in there. At the risk of stating the glaringly obvious, we can't deal with hunger in this country unless we also deal with the income that families need. We can't fix the problem with nutrition programs alone. So there are good income supports in the bill. Uh, from our perspective, the most important is the House bill improves the refundable child tax credit which currently you have to be making more than $8,500 to get in and start getting refundable credit. The House lowers that threshold to $1. Uh, the Senate also lowers that threshold, albeit not enough and not as far. Um, just to show the ties to hunger, even though they're obvious, there's a new study uh, out of Canada uh, where the amount of refundable child credits vary from province to province that shows, and I know this will just shock you, that where refundable credits are higher, hunger is less. Um, the, the House bill, as does the Senate bill by and large, also makes improvements in the earned income tax credit, in TANF, supplemental security income, child support enforcement, unemployment insurance in some very important ways, a range of income supports. They're incredibly important for struggling and hungry families and also are very stimulative. So we certainly hope and expect that we'll get a, a stimulus bill right away and that the conference will produce a result with a range of provisions that are helpful to low-income people and address these food stamp and hunger, other hunger issues. Uh, that takes me to child nutrition reauthorization, which a process that's already started. Um, uh, the child nutrition programs, uh, so the food stamp program is, uh, re was reauthorized last year as part of the Farm Bill. Uh, the child nutrition program, school lunch, school breakfast, summer and after school food, WIC, uh, the food program that serves kids in child care institutions, ch uh, centers and family daycare uh, homes, uh, and Head Start. Uh, all those programs are up for reauthorization this year. 
All those programs are entitlements except for WIC. And it's an important opportunity for Congress and the President to improve eligibility in those programs and also to improve the quality of nutrition kids get in those programs and, and prevent obesity. I'm obviously not going to detail our 32-point agenda of improvements, but just to give you a couple of thoughts of the types of things that ought to be in these bills. Um, uh, the, the way child care and after-school and summer programs get federal dollars to feed kids are basically, if you're in a low-income neighborhood, um, you can get the money to feed all the kids in the program uh, without getting separate applications from the kids. It's an easy area eligibility test. But that test has gotten tougher because of cuts in the programs made by the Gingrich Congress in 96 as part of the welfare law, and in fact uh, in, 80, in 81 during, uh, the Reagan, uh, during the Reagan era. So we're trying to improve the area eligibility test. Um, in child nutrition reauthorization. Another thing we want to do is substantially increase access to school breakfast. School breakfast is like a magic wand for um, schools and for kids. It, uh, kids do better on achievement tests. There are fewer behavior problems, fewer nurse visits. Schools do better. Everybody does better if you get school breakfast to the kids. So we're trying to improve the school breakfast program. And there are a range of ways, obviously, also, to improve nutrition quality, one thing to do is to get uh, competitive uh, foods, junk foods out of schools, out of the cafeteria, out of um, vending machines, and so on around the school. To do child nutrition reauthorization right requires money. We're asking for $20 billion over five years for reauthorization. We'll see what shows up in uh, the President's budget and the House and Senate budget resolutions. But that's the, uh, the minimum framework of child nutrition reauthorization. I'm uh, going to talk in the three minutes left to me about two other things. Uh, one, uh, I was asked to say what administrative changes the administration can do to uh, alter the programs. Uh, uh, and I'll start by saying that um, uh, the nutrition program administration in the Bush era doesn't look like the rest of the government. Uh, it doesn't look like the EPA. It doesn't look like TANF. Um, both the career and the political staff were generally were more supportive than not. Uh, there was very little unremitting hostility in the Department of Agriculture to the programs. Certainly there was caution. There were mistakes. There was a desire not to spend a lot more money. Uh, but it's really a qualitatively different proposal from 90% proposition, from 90% of the other government agencies. Um, there aren't, um, uh, there isn't, it isn't going to take two years to clean up the mess that was left behind of bad rules. Um, uh, there isn't a single um, uh, symbolic thing like the gag rule uh, that they need to do tomorrow to turn things around. There are obviously important ways administratively in all these programs to move the programs forward to expand eligibility to improve nutrition. And um, you can find those uh, on our website and on uh, the Obama website. The submission we gave them on that is at uh, change.gov. Uh, but that's basically the framework of um, the administrative agenda, that it's 50 significant but not earth-shaking things that together could have profound impact. Uh, but any single one of which doesn't rise to the level of uh, the gag rule or, uh, or telling states that they can't control emissions from cars or something like that. Uh, that takes me to the last topic, which is uh, the 2015 goal. During the campaign, uh, the Obama-Biden campaign, 
uh, put out a paper committing to end childhood hunger in this country by 2015. Uh, and that paper recognized also that uh, that reaching that goal was totally intertwined with reducing hunger, I'm sorry, reducing poverty, and also with improving nutrition for kids. There were some specifics in that paper, but uh, a lot more is going to have to be done to tease out the path to ending childhood hunger in this country by 2015. I think the administration would agree that it needs to be fleshed out, that the paper is a, is a position, not a prescription. So we need to get to that prescription. In this confirmation hearings, uh, Secretary Vilsack recommitted to that goal. So it's not just a pre-election goal, it's a post-election goal as well. Uh, and we, we and other anti-hunger groups plan to work with the administration to hold them to that goal and to reach that goal. Um, the stimulus is a step, uh, assuming it passes with the uh, nutrition provisions intact. Child nutrition reauthorization is a step, but there are only steps. There's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, to uh, uh, on both the income side, obviously getting wages up. Uh, we need a decent economy again. Uh, we don't. We need a better economy than we had before the recession, because we need to raise wages at the bottom. We need to raise income supports, and we need to improve the nutrition programs. And the most important thing we can do in the nutrition programs is a substantial, law, permanent increase in in food stamp benefits, so people have enough to eat right now, food stamp benefits just run out. Uh, so uh, everything uh, we've talked about, uh, well, I'll just close by saying that, um, uh, you know, in Joel's book lays out in much more detail than we can today why this is incredibly important to the nation. Uh, it's important uh, for moral reasons. Uh, it's insane and fundamentally bank morally bankrupt for a nation this wealthy, this wealthy today, much less this wealthy two years ago or two years from now, to have the levels of hunger and food insecurity we have. And also, as Joel indicated, talking about the study he did, you know, it causes long-term economic harm. It's hurting schools. It's hurting workplaces. It's driving up health costs. Uh, we need to eliminate hunger in this country, not just childhood hunger, but hunger overall. And we need to get people nutrition that keeps them healthy. Thanks. Thank you. Um, and, and next we're going to turn to Judith. Um, Jim's touched upon some issues related to nutritious foods and, and healthy foods. And I think um, Judith is going to take us a little bit further into that topic. Great. Thank you very much. So as you heard, I'm from PolicyLink. And uh, one thing I do want to say about PolicyLink is that our our tagline, Lifting Up What Works, is a lot of what you're going to hear about today, because I'm going to give you examples from the local and state level around the country that point to innovations that ought to be thought about scaled up to the federal level. Uh, at PolicyLink, we believe local leaders are national leaders, and that much of the innovation happening around our nation's problems at the local level can be helpful uh, brought, to, brought to scale. So I'm going to talk about the other Another piece of this puzzle, which is the challenge around access to healthy food, I'm going to show you a lot of maps to give you the visuals around what this problem is, give you a sense about the consequences about from a health side, an economic side, a community side, talk about some of these innovations, and then get to some federal policy pieces. So this, unfortunately, this picture of this grocery store is unfortunately very common around the country and has been happening more and more. 
I am sorry to say that I have been working around these issues, uh, particularly around supermarkets and low-income communities and communities of color for about 20 years. This is common around the country. And this is also common. What you find in neighborhood after neighborhood around the country is a plethora of fast food and convenience stores and very little, very few grocery stores. And so people have very little access to healthy foods. This is a picture of the city of Detroit. In the city of Detroit, there is no major supermarket chain. There are some local chains, but there is no major supermarket chain in the city of Detroit. And 25% of the land in the city is now vacant, which you can see in this photo, and presents both challenges and opportunities for the city in terms of access to healthy food. Okay, so now let's start looking at some of the different places around the country. So I can give you a sense from a, a map perspective about what's happening. This is Louisville. Two neighborhoods highlighted, uh, West Louisville and East Downtown. These are low-income, primarily African-American neighborhoods. And what you find is that in those two neighborhoods, there is one supermarket for every 75,000 people. For the rest of the city, one supermarket for about every 6,000 people. Very serious problem, very limited access to healthy food. Now take a look at this. Okay, this is the African-American population, and this is the density of convenience stores. And what you notice is in those two neighborhoods where there are only two supermarkets, there's this incredible density of convenience stores selling uh, basically junk food. You'll have a hard time finding an apple there. You'll have a hard find time finding any kind of healthy food in those stores. And that is uh, a challenge for the people living in those neighborhoods. Here's the density of the fast food in those neighborhoods. And you can just see name after name of chains that are there of uh, offering food, but with very, very few healthy alternatives. Okay, so now onward to Connecticut. Don't want you to think that this is just a problem in Louisville. In Connecticut, there are 50 towns that do not have a supermarket. So problem across the state there. And then this is a map nationally that shows actually the issue for rural communities. These are all rural communities where people don't have access to supermarkets within 10 miles. So this is a problem in rural communities, in urban communities, and in some suburban communities. Okay, now we're going to move on to talk some about what I would call sort of proving the logic, right? If somebody said to you, uh, if you live in a neighborhood without access to healthy food, will you have health problems that are associated with eating poorly? You'd probably say, yeah, probably. Well, now what we're going to see is the data showing the connection between lack of access to healthy food and health problems. So this is a map um, of New York City. And uh, what you see here is the, the darker the color, the greater the measurement of need. Now, I will say one thing about New York, which is interesting, which is this long tail about lack of access, particularly to supermarkets. Uh, has some of the solutions starting in New York. Um, Harlem for a long time had no supermarkets and a local faith-based uh, community development corporation, the Abyssinian, closely with the Abyssinian Church, spent an incredibly long time trying to figure out how to get a supermarket in and they finally got a Pathmark in. That Pathmark was so successful that Pathmark opened additional stores and they started targeting some low-income communities. So that began actually a little bit of the story that I'll unfold in, in, in a little while about the types of innovations that actually can help to bring supermarkets in. So there's food access and health. And here is the prevalence of diabetes and obesity. Let me go back. Watch, okay, take a mental picture of this map. And now look at that map. You see how similar they are? Okay, so what you really see is that um, 
diabetes and obesity in the same neighborhoods in which you have lack of access to healthy food. These are food deserts, as they're sometimes called in Chicago. These are neighborhoods, uh, and there's about half a million people living in these neighborhoods that simply do not have access to healthy food. Uh, and, and you can see those neighborhoods here. And now what you can see, this is now looking at BMI, right, which is a measurement of obesity. And what you see is the red areas are, are where people have a particularly high BMI. And then they did a measurement around access to healthy food, and the black are the places that have the worst food balance score. So you can see that, in general, where you have high BMI, you have a lack of access to healthy food. Okay, so PolicyLink wanted to ask this question. So if you live in one of these neighborhoods, some people would say, well, it's just about uh, the neighborhood is actually it's about the people, not the neighborhood. And so we wanted to take a look at what happens when you look at a, uh, a calculation where you take fast food and convenience stores right on the numerator and you take grocery store and produce ven vendors on the denominators and then you take a look at health data. Will that question I was raising early, earlier about the logic, will it play out? And so we looked across the state of California and what did we find? We found that if you live in a neighborhood with a high density of fast food and convenience stores, regardless of your income, you're going to have a much higher propensity for having diabetes and for being obese. Uh, this takes a look at it in terms of income. Lower income communities are much more impacted, as you would expect from what you've already seen. But in fact, uh, when you live in those neighborhoods, you have a much higher chance of being obese. And this is laying it out by different scores about how unhealthy is the environment. The more unhealthy, the greater the chance for obesity. So. All of this plays into this national epidemic we have around obesity, particularly acute for kids. The uh, experts now say that if we continue in this trend with childhood obesity, our children will live shorter lives than we as their parents will live. Pretty shocking statistic, but playing out in very serious ways in terms of uh, kids having, having diabetes and all sorts of other problems associated with um, obesity. It's not just on the health side, it's also on the economic side. Supermarkets are incredibly important economic anchors in neighborhoods. They're about jobs, they're about uh, the neighborhood vitality, and they're about tax revenue, something all of us care about quite a bit in this current environment. So got to keep this broader picture uh, in your head as you're thinking about supermarkets and access to healthy food. So what are people doing around the country? There's an incredible amount of activity happening in the country. There are a couple of different reports in the back from PolicyLink, one of which is filled with different examples about community strategies that are designed to increase access to healthy food, and another which is about all sorts of attraction strategies that localities and states are doing to try and bring in grocery stores. You have everything from community-supported agriculture, you've got urban agriculture happening, farmers markets, and then a lot around development and attraction. So the big one, the one that I want to spend a little bit of time on today, is what's been happening in Pennsylvania. It's the Fresh Food Financing Initiative. was enacted there as part of their economic stimulus package. Uh, kind of interesting to be able to say that now. It's had an enormous impact there. They created a fund. Now, the fund is managed by a nonprofit community development fi financial institution, so it can be leveraged. It's leveraged at about eight times the value. And that fund uh, provides both grants and loans from about 250000 up to about $2.5 
And there's this very successful partnership from the nonprofit side, the food trust, the redevelopment, the reinvestment fund, and from the public side that has had incredible impacts. 58 new or renovated stores. These are across the state. They're in urban areas. They're in suburban areas. They're in rural areas. They are small stores that have been renovated to provide access to healthy food, and they're new supermarkets that have appeared. Interesting, some of these supermarkets are locating in what I, in essentially on the border of a low-income community, abutting a higher-income community, providing access to both neighborhoods and allowing them to leverage economically across those neighborhoods. 320,000 residents served, 3,500 jobs created. They have documented increases in nearby home values, right? This gets to how much of an anchor it is. All sorts of revitalization happening around these supermarkets. And this has been such a success story that, his, that in his state of the state, the New York, New York Governor Patterson announced that New York is going to start a similar effort. And there are also efforts underway in Illinois, Louisiana, and New Jersey. This is an incredible success story and very much about economic stimulus and all about access to healthy food. There are other studies uh, from uh, both domestically and internationally that also prove another point around logic. This question people will say, well, if you provide a grocery store, will people eat healthier foods? And yes, they will. Given access to healthy food, there are documented studies showing increased uh, purchase and eating of produce and other healthy foods. So very important point. Uh, here in D.C. and across the country, there are efforts to work with corner stores. This is actually a project uh, that's focused here at FRAC. And they are working with owners trying to figure out how can they help that business model shift so that they can provide access to healthy foods. Sometimes it's around refrigeration. Sometimes it's around marketing. Sometimes around community information. But there's now a whole network of folks working on, on corner stores across the country. There's this tremendous effort that has scaled up over the last several years that does have support from the federal government, uh, is tied to child nutrition uh, reauthorization, and that's this linkage of farm to school and farm to institutions. Dramatic increase in programs and dramatic then increased access to healthy food for kids and also helping kids to understand uh, food in a different kind of way and giving their new options. There is uh, now a rebirth of urban agriculture. In cities like Detroit, with all that vacant land that I was mentioning earlier, there's actually at the city level discussions about using some of that vacant land for urban agriculture, using it to bring more access to healthy foods, and using it as a, as a piece of their economic pie. So as, um, as you might gather, there are all sorts of different types of federal policy goals that ought to be tied to the kinds of changes that have been happening in communities around the country. We've got to work more at providing better access to retail stores that provide healthy food, fresh fruits, vegetables, et cetera. We've got to work around schools and access to healthy food there in and around the schools. We need to think about regional food systems, and we need to recognize that, yes, this is about health, but this is also about jobs. This is about uh, economic impacts in communities, and it's part of what we should be thinking about both on the health side and on the economic side. So just a couple of opportunities. Uh, there were some pieces of the Farm Bill that first I want to mention. There's a food desert study that's being conducted by USDA that was set up uh, in the Farm Bill and is slated to come out actually sometime this spring. They've done a couple of meetings on it already. Uh, we expect they'll be able to then take one more step down this 
uh, long path of pointing out the lack of access to healthy food. There is also in the Farm Bill the establishment of a new Healthy Urban Food Enterprise Development Center. That'll be happening sometime soon. There's increases around access to healthy food through the EBT program at farmers markets, and there are other components at, as well that should help with access to healthy food. Lots of pieces to the Child Nutrition Act, and I'll skip over that part because Jim mentioned them, but there are all sorts of important pieces that need to happen on that side to improve access to healthy food. And as you might have guessed, uh, my talking about the efforts in Pennsylvania and other sta states is to point out the possibility for the federal government to be thinking about these kinds of steps at the federal level where you can leverage dollars and have both an economic and a health impact in communities around the country. And then there are other steps as well. We ought to continue to expand the farm to school and the farm to institution program. We ought to provide all sorts of incentives to make sure people can get into the food stamp program. There there are lots of places where there are barriers to that, and there are many other things that the federal government can do as well. You know, this access to healthy food problem, just like the hunger problem, can be solved. Uh, there are all these examples from localities. There are steps that can be taken. I want to point out that on that Pennsylvania example, there's not continuing support for those uh, markets that are created or renovated. It's getting them over that financing hurdle that makes a difference. Then they're there. They're in the community. They're solving that access to healthy food problem. We ought to take it on. We ought to do it as part of the stimulus. We ought to do it as part of, uh, part of this new administration. We can do it at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. Thank you. I was wondering if, if we could take a moment to, to discuss um, food affordability. Um, certainly when this recession began, food prices were on the rise, um, a trend that I think is, is reversing itself. Um, and then I can't help but notice in Judith's map where we're looking at all the fast foods that those fast food restaurants offer cheap food. Um, and I know one of the, the news stories that's caught my attention recently was that McDonald's profits are up when, when so many others are down as a result of this recession. And then I couldn't help but um, notice and want to point out that, that Jim mentioned that, that within the recovery package, there we're seeking some increases in the level of benefits for food stamps. So I was wondering if we could just kind of have a discussion about that, about affordability and the ability to, to actually purchase good and healthy foods? Um, <clears throat> uh, while uh, the surge in energy costs that uh, started 18 months ago turned around, uh, the surge in food costs really hasn't yet. Um, and f uh, food ca costs for low-income people are rising faster than for the rest of us. So from December 07 to December 08, while the um, uh, uh, the cost of food rose 6.6% over the year. The cost of the so-called thrifty food plan, which is the theoretical government market basket that poor people buy with food stamps, rose by 8.3%. So we're still suffering, and low-income people in particular are suffering from very rapid uh, food price inflation. Now, that may slow down a little bit, but um, when you're living on an inadequate uh, uh, amount of money in food stamps to begin with. Any inflation, of course, hurts you, even though the programs are uh, adjusted annually. Can I make a, a point on that, which is that, you know, those convenience stores have much higher prices, even for what they're offering. And so people are paying more for lousier food. 
And so one of the ways to help on this issue is to bring in this access to healthy foods, because generally if you bring it in a larger store, you're going to have cheaper prices. And then the other thing we see when we go and we survey is we find that people who are in those neighborhoods without access know where the cheaper prices are and they figure out as much as they can to go there. But we ought to have access in their neighborhoods so that they can get healthy food and they can get it at a better price. When I talk about this issue uh, on a radio call-in show or on a blog, inevitably people will be irate and call in or blog in saying, you know, why don't these lazy poor people you know, just cook more healthily? And you know, what if we just, or in a more patronizing, more liberal, progressive way, if we just provided them nutrition education? And I, I think nutrition education is an important leg of a three-legged stool of education physical availability, as we've discussed. If it doesn't exist in your neighborhood, you can get all the education you want. You can't get it, but also affordability. In my book, I praise people like Michael Pollan for taking on dysfunction in the international food system, but are quite critical of comments by him or celebrity chef Alice Waters that increasing food prices are somehow a good thing. I think that's really an abominable claim and easy for them uh, to say. I actually uh, did a stunt two years ago and lived on the food stamps allotment for a week, which then in New York was $28.30 a, a, a week. And that was the average. People criticized me for saying, oh, uh, many people get higher than that. If you've seen a CNN reporter is living on a one-person allotment, but not the average, the highest possible under law, which actually goes for a very, very small percentage of the people on the food stamps program. Uh, uh, all these brilliant right-wing critics uh, didn't understand the meaning of the word average. But if I was at the average level, and yes, people got higher, that meant a lot of people got lower. Until recently, with the change in the Farm Bill, you could get $10 a month if you are certain senior citizens, uh, certain uh, people on SSI, or certain people living in, in public housing. And that was before the increase in the food prices. And one other thing, not to be guilt-inducing, but this is one thing I talk about in the book, that really was a revelation to me when I did this food stamps diet, I really banned myself from eating food I couldn't get with food stamps. So you couldn't eat out, because that's illegal, because that's a luxury for poor people. Uh, but also, I couldn't eat food at all the places. I got free food in the white-collar workplace. And doing this, I realized I go to a breakfast meeting, free food. Go to a lunch talk, free talk. Go to a reception, shrimp cocktails, as plentiful as, as you know, uh, the cocktails. It really is like the swag bags for the Hollywood people who need the gifts most. Those of us who need free food most, least, get it most. And those who need it most, we have to fingerprint them in four states to be able to say they can get their lousy buck a meal. <laughs> Okay. Um. <laughs> one of the cameras is gone. We can speak freely. <laughs> Just between us. Um, during his comments, Jim brought up a number of um, policy solutions, and I know that, that Joel has developed a number within his book as well. Um, and, of course, advocates across town have all kinds of sorts of um, advice and, and opinions about what the Obama administration should be doing. I just wanted to give all the panelists an opportunity um, to, to further comment on policy ideas they may have or solutions that they can see that they're hoping that the new administration, the new Congress may be pursuing. I'll start with one I expect everyone on the panel will agree with, and, and, and that is basically saying as a goal, every child in America going to school gets a free breakfast, regardless of their family income. We learned long ago that uh, textbooks should be free because that's a key educational tool. Breakfast should be free. A few years ago at a frat conference, uh, Senator Thad Cochran, not a northeastern left-winger, 
said that he believed uh, considerable savings could happen by not having this huge process to collect all the forms to prove whether you're free or reduce priced uh, lunch. I would make the conservative argument this is a way to reduce government bureaucracy so we, and not just make it universal, but serve it in the first period classrooms. Uh, they've done that in Newark, and a great FRAC report pointed to us to that, and we use that to convince New York City to start doing it. They're moving up to 350 schools. When you have it in a separate lunchroom where the kids have to come early and they have to essentially raise their hand, I'm the poor kid, I need the free breakfast, they're not going to do it. In New York City and nationwide, about 80% of the kids eligible for free breakfast don't get it. And so free school, universal breakfast in the first period schoolroom. Uh, and unions, at least one teacher's union person I spoke to actually supported that. One other thing is I always bring this prop. This is a list of documents that USDA provides that you have to bring to get food stamps. I won't talk about the issue that tax <coughs> filing is voluntary and the government trusts you. Uh, when you file for food stamps, the government doesn't trust you for anything. You have to prove a negative that you don't live with someone. You have to prove a negative that you don't have a bank account. I have to prove that I'm not the other Joel Berg. Uh, and uh, it is mind-numbingly complex to apply for the food stamps program. In most places, you have to be 130% of the poverty line or below. WIC is 185% of the poverty line or below. Reduced price breakfast or lunch is 185% of the poverty line or below. Uh, free lunch is 130% of the poverty line or below. Uh, Commodities through USDA depends where you live. The Commodity Supplemental Food Program isn't in most of the jurisdictions, but depends uh, where you live. So I've actually combined, called for combining the application processes, this streamlining the administrative procedures, combining more of the administrative procedures, keeping the benefits intact. I'm not saying block grant this, as some conservatives say, as an excuse to really gut the programs, keeping the benefits intact, but making it easier for people to apply, reducing the bureaucracy, where USDA spends a lot of time just making sure states fill out paperwork in the same way. So saying to conservatives, you wanted to reduce government, you want to reduce bureaucracy, stop treating people, poor people like criminals for needing food programs, have one application that everyone can apply for all these programs, and make it more eligible for working poor families to get. Uh, just one thing on that, you know, we've done, uh, many states have done uh, the application process on the health side and done it electronically. There's no reason you couldn't do exactly what Joel's talking about on a one-stop. You show up, you find out right away. That's the way it's done now on the health side. Find out right away, you're done, you're in, and that's it. So we ought to take it to that level as well. We don't need all the paper anymore, and we make it very fast for people. I, I, I guess I heard the question a little differently, although. Um, uh, so I would say I think we're... Uh, uh, through dint of uh, hard work and luck at a historic point where it may actually be possible to um, uh, come close to ending hunger, dramatically reduce poverty, and substantially improve nutrition um, for low-income people over the next four, six years. Um, and so I think uh, keeping an eye on that end agenda and at the most ambitious level uh, weaving those three, three things together because we're not going to um, end hunger unless we substantially reduce poverty. We're not going to deal with nutrition unless we get more nutrition supports to people. Uh, we're not going to improve nutrition, but we also have to improve what's provided to low-income people. I, I think you know that, that policy agenda is something that's within our reach at this point. At this point, I'm going to open the floor to questions. There's a couple. 
Thank you so much for this great panel. Um, my question to all of you is, after the stimulus package is passed, how are we going to make sure that the money is going to go to all of these really great programs so people can eat? Thank you. Uh, well, luckily, um, uh, a lot of things that are happening in these programs are state options, like uh, some of the farm bill uh, improvements we got last year are state options. Uh, what's in the stimulus package mostly on the nutrition side is stuff that states will just have to do, and USDA, I'm sure, will make them do it. Uh, raising benefits, you know, that now it's not easy if you're a bankrupt state with a 27-year-old computer system to program your computers, but, you know, they've already got all the bailing wire and uh, duct tape uh, holding those computers together that they need, and, and they can raise benefits. So most of it is, uh, is um, uh, automatic. I will say there's a lot of stuff in uh, the stimulus bills um, which has the potential for being brought into the nutrition and hunger universe uh, that we're not talking about in that context. Uh, for example, I don't know if it's still in the Senate bill. I don't know what they're jettisoning uh, as we speak. But um, the House bill has a lot of money for school construction, uh, I think $15 billion. Well, a significant share of that money advocates ought to make sure is spent on cafeterias, on uh, physical activity facilities. Um, we ought to be using the school construction money to address hunger and obesity uh, and bring down the cost of what we have to do in the child nutrition bill by spending the stimulus money on it. And as you know, you know there are a lot of pots in the stimulus bill where um, there's potential to uh, use that money productively for these goals. I just want to reemphasize the importance of the stimulus bill. And if I didn't praise the administration, it's just I'm not used to praising administrations. I'm getting uh, back into that habit. I say, as an advocate, once in a blue moon, we can say our government's done the right thing and we can praise them. And this is that blue moon. Uh, you know, the Farm Bill had about $10 billion over 10 years for food stamps. The stimulus bill, at least the House version, had $20 billion over two years. So, arguably, you know, 10 times as, as much. This is a very important advance. And by the way, this is the first president in U.S. history, to my knowledge, at least, that uh, grew up in a family that at least briefly received food stamps benefits. He gets it. Uh, the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, on three different occasions in his first week in office, reiterated the administration's interest in doing this, as Jim mentioned, not only in, in his confirmation hearing, in his first talk to USDA employees, in his first talk with farm broadcasters. So this is very encouraging. Our job is to work with them to get it done. But I must uh, give credit where credit's due. And, and one thing, you know, uh, food stamps work. I, I've called for reforming them uh, uh, and improving them further. But even as it is now, it's an incredible program. It was basically the only federal program that worked following Katrina. Uh, everything else was falling apart. The emergency food stamps program got people benefits within days. And literally within weeks of the stimulus bill becoming law, low-income people can be spending more money feeding their families and creating and bolstering jobs in neighborhoods across America. So I, I think we have less to worry about implementation of this than getting it passed. There was another question in the back. Ezra Klein, The American Prospect. Um, thank you all for the great panel. As someone who writes on a lot of this, uh, w one of the things I find that you run into a lot is the question of obesity, that there's a lot of cross-correlation between communities where you have both food instability and hunger, but also high preponderance of obesity and associated chronic disease. 
And uh, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about navigating that tension because though there is a difference obviously between food and calories, there is, um, it, it's hard to get past the intuitive belief people have that if people are fat, they're not hungry and, or maybe even they should be hungry in that sense. And so uh, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I think one way to make the argument is to show some of those maps. I, I don't think people realize the depth of the lack of access and the, the lack of choices that people have. And then when you look at the choices they do have, it underscores the exact comment you're making, which is to the extent people have any money, what they're able to buy in their neighborhoods are high-calorie, poor, not nutritious food. And so it leads to this fairly bizarre combination between a problem with obesity and a problem with hunger and a problem with lack of access to healthy food. It's all part, I think, of taking this out of it just being a people context, understanding it's both a people and a place <coughs> context. We don't have healthy communities, and so we don't have healthy people. And I think it's that linkage that people have a hard time making, and it's why they just look at a person and they say, you're poor and you're fat, and they leave it at that, as opposed to then taking it and saying, well, where does that person live? What's their access like? What are the limitations that they have in terms of getting to other neighborhoods, et cetera? And if people made the linkage between people and communities, I think they'd begin to understand the problem differently. Uh, I, I, have, I have a lot to say about this topic, but I'll try and keep <laughs> it to three or four points. Um, one, uh, um, the, the assumption that uh, low-income people uh, are, uh, as population, are more obese than uh, non-low-income people is not quite accurate. It varies by age, by gender, by race. Um, one population that is uh, more likely to be obese is uh, African-American women. Uh, poor African-American women are more likely to be obese than uh, middle-income African-American women. And I, uh, uh, among other things, the pressures, the lack of resources and the stresses on mothers, low-income mothers, and particularly women of color, are so extraordinary um, that, you know, lack of health care, lack of access to healthy food, uh, food stamp uh, benefits that aren't enough, uh, low wages, that um, uh, it, there's this um, set of stresses that are playing out in all sorts of ways, physically, um, psychologically, that we've only begun to, under uh, begun, begun to understand. But there are, you know, there are, there is emerging evidence of when people have enough to eat for three weeks of the month and then not enough the fourth week, that there are physiological changes, there are psychological changes. Um, uh, Joel talked about taking the food stamp challenge. Um, there's a woman in my office who has three young children. I have her permission to tell this story. Uh, she works full time, she's married, she has three young children. She took the food stamp challenge and passing her in the hallway one day, I said, when she was on it, I said innocuously, how are you doing? And she burst into tears. And for me, that captures the whole, th the whole thing of what it's like to work and be on food stamps. Uh, you're constantly tired, stressed, um, uh, dealing with all sorts of changes. Um, uh, so, um, uh, and the last thing I'd say is there's a lot of it. These programs aren't good enough. Making them more robust would make them better. But there's a huge amount of evidence that they improve nutrition that school meals are better than what kids are bringing from home. They're obviously better than what they get if they go to the corner uh, McDonald's. The childcare food is better. 
Um, and even, you know, food stamps improves scores on a healthy eating index. Uh, USDA has put out papers showing that, you know, uh, food stamps don't contribute to obesity. So, I mean, I think I've do not done a good job of weaving this together, but there are 10 answers to that question, which can be woven together into an incredibly coherent mosaic, which I hope to do some other time. Let me, <laughs> let me just make two quick points. I have a whole chapter in my book on this called Is America Fat or Is It Hungry? And, and first, I, I, I sort of detail at length the history of the right-wing think tank factory in America trying to deny hunger from Herbert Hoover through Ed Meese, and their latest thing is this, uh, this obesity shtick. And, and so all the other stuff wasn't believable because when Ed Meese said there's no hunger and people went to their church-based food pantry and saw a long line, they didn't believe it. But Americans do believe, oh, people are fat, they can't be hungry. It, it just uh, sounds right, but it is not accidental that arguments to that effect are appearing in the press, appearing in Congress. It is part of a right-wing attack intended to undermine support for the Federal Nutrition Assistance Safety Net. And the very people who say, by the way, oh, these programs have worked, we no longer need them, are the same people who opposed them in the first place. So do not believe that argument. Uh, look, there are very complex reasons people weigh more than they should. I'm one of them. I ran the New York City Marathon a few years ago, and I'm not a slender guy, believe it or not. I like uh, fried dumplings and pizza and New York bagels a little too much, and I'm too busy on the road giving talks on hunger to exercise as much. But that being said, uh, you know, there's genetic reasons, uh, there are emotional reasons, there are physiological reasons, but clearly poverty, food insecurity, and hunger are very significant contributing uh, factors. And to all these things we talked about, you know, low-income people don't afford gym memberships. If gyms even exist in their neighborhoods, public parks generally don't exist or aren't safe uh, to exercise in. Uh, when people tell me, oh, the low-income people, they should just, you know, uh, prepare their own beans like the slow food movement. I remind them that we've lectured low-income people. They should be working, and now only 10% of the people in poverty are on public assistance in America. They are working two, three, four jobs. They don't have nannies for their kids, and now we're saying they should spend five hours to cook their beans to be responsible. So there are a lot of reasons in the real world that uh, low-income people have an even harder time of eating healthily. But we don't feel strongly about it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's a woman in the back who's been excitedly trying to jump in for a little while now. <laughs> well done. Hi, thank you. My name is Erica Hall. I work for NeighborWorks America. Again, I want to thank everybody on this panel because this um, issue is really important. As somebody that works for a national organization that's involved in the foreclosure crisis right now, and it's, I mean, it's just words can't even describe how bad the situation is and, and what we're doing to try to stem, you know, the flow of foreclosures. But what we're not talking about are the hidden population of renters that are now homeless that are also hungry. And as advocates, I think we need to work together the affordable housing, you know, advocates and the housing advocates with the food hunger and insecurity advocates together to kind of partner because when you have the homelessness and the foreclosures coupled with the hunger and the same people that you're saying are not being qualified for the food stamps or for the program, that just makes it harder for people. Once you lose your home, you feel like you've lost everything. You've lost hope. You've lost life. You've lost your dreams. So it's a very demoralizing situation. I think we need to work together to kind of get, you know, people to understand how serious this is right now. 
Can I just say one? I absolutely agree with that. And of course, there's always a danger that we silo these issues and, uh, and should be dealing with them more across the board. Uh, but something you said reminded me is one thing that we haven't quite captured here today is the incredible importance of entitlement programs and all these program nutrition programs except wicker entitlement programs and so even without the stimulus bill they've been very responsive not as responsive as they should be but very responsive to the recession there are four million more people on food stamps today than there were a year ago uh, CBO in September estimated that fiscal year 09 spending on food stamps would be $39 billion. That was just in September. The re because of the recession and the deepening of it, CBO estimated in January last month that 09 food stamp spending would be $50 billion. So that's an $11 billion change in the program based on its current law response, that's before stimulus spending, on its current law responsiveness to economic conditions. Um, so it's important to know that these programs are already, you know, very elastic and vital in their response for all their shortcomings. I just I wanted to thank you also for your comments and say that if I'd added a map on foreclosure rates, you would have seen them concentrated in the same neighborhoods that have lack of ha access to healthy food. No question about it. I'll just say we, we can't end poverty without ending hunger. Uh, but if we end hunger without, you know, dramatically reducing poverty, only keep going up again, we'll keep having to spend money. So I didn't focus on the way Jim has, but I wholeheartedly agree with everyone. We need a massive, serious war on poverty. And by the way, between 1960 and 1973, the poverty rate in America was cut in half. 16 million people moved from poverty into the middle class. Do not be conned into believing that the war on poverty was a failure. We stopped fighting it. This is actually interesting because of the expression that we could end hunger, but the numbers that Jim just stated are rather stark. Could you talk a little bit about, um, the, about both believing that you can end hunger, but also in a time when there's such rising hunger and there's such rising need? <laughs> um, um, so, sure. Well, I, I mean, I think when we talk about ending hunger by 2015, we're either, I don't know if the right word is assuming or praying that, uh, you know, economically the nation in two to three years will be roughly back to where it was, that we'll have, we'll have a growing economy and um, uh, uh, we won't worry about the stock market, but unemployment levels and economic growth levels will be back to where they were um, uh, two years ago were better because they weren't all that good uh, two years ago. Um, so, um, uh, you know, in the context of a, uh, a, and if that doesn't happen, you know, I'm not sure, uh, something of a, so I'm not sure which way politically the country will go, whether we'll see uh, more anger at poor people who need food stamps or more support for them. But assuming we come out of the recession, question is, you know, can, can we end hunger uh, and food insecurity, uh, really, um, by improving some economic supports and nutrition supports? And uh, the answer is yes. Again, those numbers also move substantially. Uh, that We weren't counting them in the, in the 60s, but in the 90s, uh, they started moving substantially. Um, and it's possible to have a dramatic effect uh, if benefits are robust enough and the economy is decent on these numbers. Say, you know, over the last few decades, federal spending on federal nutrition assistance programs has been marginally higher 
the rate of inflation. Yes, there were some cuts, but by and large, most of the worst cuts proposed in the Reagan years and other years would be back. They were, we all say they were far too great a cut. But why has hunger been going up if the spending's been going up? Because if you add a few billion to the nutrition programs, but take away tens of billions or hundreds of billions from the pockets of low-income people and reduced uh, wages, as has happened over the last few decades, and increased spending on health care, increased spending on child care, increased spending on housing with virtually no serious federal investment in housing, of course, people are going to have less money to buy food. Okay, and we're going to take one last question. I think the woman here in the third row has been waiting for a while. Deborah Schumann, I um, work on health care reform, Physicians for a National Health Program. And I think the statistic that grabs me the most is the rate of obesity, especially among our children. I've hardly ever seen any adults lose weight, but if a child grows up obese, guess what? They're going to be obese for their whole life. And my question has to do with um, how much effect you think getting some kind of control of nutrition in the schools can have, uh, given that the kids go home to neighborhoods like the one that I lived in Detroit, which don't have grocery stores. And, you know, their parents don't really know how to cook healthy foods. How much of an effect can, can be controlled by doing something in the schools? Because I don't accept that their parents don't know how to cook healthy foods. So just to say that point, I don't think it's... Well, we just did a series of focus groups in Oakland, and what was so fascinating was the vast majority of people in those groups were talking about all the cooking that they do do. So there's actually quite a bit of cooking that continues in households. We went to uh, one in one focus group. It was uh, predominantly senior citizens. In that group, every single one of those seniors could tell you the exact day that every farmer market was happening in the region. They knew how to get there on buses. They went every time. And there was one that somebody didn't know about, and they all wrote it down. So I, 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 don't, um, I don't accept that part. And I would add that on the school side, for many of these kids, you know, the only they're getting breakfast and lunch at school and then they're going home uh, for dinner. Well, that's still two thirds, right? It's two out of the three meals that they're having in a day. And then that starts them off the right way in terms of nutrition. And then the other thing I'd say is there is all this documented evidence that was mentioned earlier about how much better they perform in school. So it sets them in terms of their life on a better trajectory, uh, being better able to complete school and then better able to get a, a good paying job. And so that's such an important part of the puzzle. And then I think we have to work to make better access to healthy food. We need to do, uh, you know, some additional steps so that you can take care of that other third meal. But I would not want us to do anything other than make those two meals that could be available to kids even healthier than they already are. We got to, for instance, make the dollars per meal go up so that the meals in schools can be healthier and taste better. And we're hoping that that's going to happen in the reauthorization process. Thank you. Um, this has been a spectacular panel. Um, I definitely want to thank everyone on the panel. If you could, everybody, give them a round of applause. Um, 
Joel will be in the back of the room um, selling his book. Um, once again, um, it's very highly recommended. I definitely found it very useful and accessible. Um, all the profits from the book go to the New York Coalition Against Hunger, so you're actually supporting a good cause in the, in, at the same time. The copies of the book sold here. If, uh, you, know, uh, you buy them through Amazon, I get a trinket of that. So I just want to be clear for the background. <laughs> And of course, thanks to the audience for also being here and asking some great questions. So hopefully we'll see you again at a future Ameri Center for American Progress event. Thank you.